Welcome, everyone. This is Mia Ferroletto, publisher of New Observations Magazine. Welcome to the podcast today. We have the distinct honor of having Rebecca Hardcastle-Wright on the show to talk about her third and newest book, which is just about to be released. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Hi, Mia. Thanks for having me. Good to hear your voice. (laughs) Yeah, it's great to hear yours, too. So um, as the um, leader, really, in the exoconscious movement, um, you coined the phrase exoconsciousness how many decades ago now? The early 2000s. Yeah. Yeah, so so 20 20 Mm -hmm. years ago. That's amazing. Tell us about the new book that you're just releasing. My, new, my newest book is called Exoconscious Humans, Claiming Psychic Intelligence in a Transhuman World. Wow. So it kind of sounds like a mouthful, but I think it's probably of all the books I've, I've written, it, it's real, and all the articles I've written, I think it, 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 really, it, it, it brings together the reason why we need exoconsciousness in a, in a very detailed and, I think, forceful way. So in, in the book, I, um, I pose two critical questions. Are psychic abilities possible in a transhuman culture? And the second question is, could artificial intelligence or AI suppress or replace human consciousness? So um, the first question, are psychic abilities even possible in a transhuman culture, I think is something that, is, that we are all dealing with today as this um, transhumanism, AI culture begins to more and more penetrate into our everyday lives and we become dependent on it, whether it's, um, you know, automatic writing, completing our texts and emails, or if it's um, digital currency that we're moving into, synthetic biology. All of these are parts of transhuman culture and all of these are are um, creating in us an, a new abilities, but they're also depriving us of old abilities. It's kind of like those Isaac Asimov books, Foundation Trilogy, when he talked about when humans just lose the ability to do what they once did, what's going to happen then? And for do you example, think this has... Cars. Go ahead. Right. I, I was just going to say, do you think... Um, and driving cars is a perfect example. Um, do you think it, that the answer to your question has something to do with in, how developed an individual is within their own conscious field <clears throat> in terms of the ability of AI to impact them or influence them? How, how developed they are in their consciousness field, but quite frankly, I think that also has to do with how how long and how deeply they've exercised their critical thinking ability. Mm-hmm. And sometimes those don't always go together. Um, persons could be incredibly psychic and knowing and have access to extrasensory fields, whether they're clairvoyant or te- telepathic, ESP, some type of healers where 
they're going out into the field of consciousness and they're, and, and they're bringing in this information and bringing in these abilities. And, and as we like to say at the Institute, actually co-creating these abilities. But I think you have to pair that with human reason and human critical thinking in order to know what's going on on Earth. You have to bring that, say, 5D psychic consciousness, if you want to call it that, down into 3D and be able to reason and critically think your way in order to navigate what's, what's occurring in culture. I, I think that's absolutely true. And my personal feeling about psychic abilities um, is that so many people exercising their psychic abilities have no discernment or idea of who, they're, who or what they're even communicating with out there because they haven't applied critical thinking and discernment to the development of those skills. They're just, you know, making contact without knowing who's on the other end of, of the line, so to speak. Right. I think there's been such a, also, um, I, I agree with you. And also, I think there's been such a demeaning of any kind of, critical thinking or reasoning ability as being negative in culture. And I think that's something that was literally programmed into culture, you know, all positivity, uh, the school of positivity that was, that, that was rolled out. I think professor from Harvard was the first one that rolled it out. And I think that was that, that in a sense began to colorize how we view critical thinking um, because it's often seen as negative. And it's uh, actually changing behavior. You have to critically think and be critical of yourself in order to change your behavior. Or if you just stay positive all the time, nothing ever changes, quite frankly. (laughs) You just kind of stay in this positive balloon and keep doing what you're doing. And the only way that you change that behavior is, is to have critical thinking about it and to reason your way through it. And that's not being taught in school. And that's, our children certainly are not being educated in that, in that form. I think it takes, and one of the reasons is it takes time. It's not instantaneous. It takes time to think things, something through critically. I mean, it took me over three years to write this book and, and it took, it took me a long time to put the pieces together and to, and to just chart my way through because critical thinking also involves our emotions. And I think that's also the piece that, that, we, that we're missing out on in all of this because when I first began to look at transhumanism, I'll be up front with you, I went through some pretty dark days and I tapped into a lot of fear and uh, I, a lot of um, exaggerated fear, <laughs> let's, let's call it like, Wow, you know, taking things to their end result and, and looking at almost like a dystopian view of what the future was going to be like. And I had to navigate my way through thinking critically in order to manage my emotions around transhumanism. And it took, it took time. It took years to do that until actually when I moved to Phoenix, I was just beginning to feel like, okay, I can... I can analyze and research transhumanism and not be afraid and not, not go into some dystopian fantasy world of a science fiction fantasy world, bad dream. And that's, 
time is something time patience and perseverance are really what living in 3d is all about and those are precious precious um, attributes that we humans have to exercise in 3d and yet we're all ready to um, throw them on the trash bin and say who needs 3d I'm I'm living in five living the 5d world well you know we could even go into um, um, extraterrestrial history or you know Plato's description of what happened with Atlantis and say wow you know maybe Atlantis should have been a little bit more 5d they would have figured out the mistakes they were making and I, I think that that's when when you when you when you pair psychic abilities with critical reasoning and critical thinking then you do find your mistakes and you change your path and you maybe go in another direction yeah and you're totally correct about the emotional um, piece emotional balance is such an important part of all of this because the average person doesn't pay attention to the fact that emotions are such fleeting moments in time that can change within the course of a few minutes or a day or a week and especially in these times where everything is accelerating our worldview can change in a heartbeat and um, all of our circumstances can change equally as fast so letting our emotions impact us to a great degree at this moment in time is really um, immature it's it represents an unevolved uh, point of view and that's like a key element in terms of being able to practice discernment is to be emotionally stable well I think that arriving at emotional stability is um, because you know I, I would never throw out emotions I'm a therapist so I would never throw out the, the authenticity and the reality of emotions because that's also our desire and that's also our passion so that's what that's what helps us navigate what we want to accomplish and the purpose of our life but it's interesting what's happened culturally and it's one of the things I go into the, the book the whole memes and mimetics that that was actually <coughs> memes were um, a military operation <laughs> uh, the whole mimetics was rolled out as a military operation that well we'll just float out these you know kind of um, one-dimensional figures that express emotion and have everybody start to relate to these cute little figures and then we'll then we'll spark an, a narrative around it it's sort of a it wasn't sort of it was a propaganda it's an instrument of propaganda and so now we all tend to look at our emotions like these little icons or these cute little you know Asian looking I guess a, a person in China or Japan invented actually the, the, the memes themselves and our emotions are much more than that they they we're mind body spirit you we have an emotional body that's that's attached to all that and if we don't if we don't get in touch with that and as you say learn discernment of that and not let it let us take us somewhere that's being rolled out with a military narrative then we need to grow up and discern more more correctly well the 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 current state of society with its reliance on prescription drugs um, for psychological reasons and 
psychological stability with, um, you know, the vast increase in bipolar disorder and lots of other psychiatric um, conditions due to the alienation that is permeating our culture at this time. Um, it, it is such a direct um, weapon, so to speak, in terms of the takedown of the healthy parts of our society and um, the kind of reinforced behavior through entertainment, through television and film and music, uh, contemporary music, you know, all of these things are, are mood uh, altering um, influences over everyday life, particularly our young people. So it's all kind of going together into the, the soup pot of um, profound influence on all of us and our psychic abilities, our own intuitive gifts are our first line of defense uh, against all of this, I think. Oh, absolutely. I, well, I think that um, educating ourselves about our psychic abilities as well as using our psychic, psychic abilities are certainly our our first level of defense. And, um, and, and, and that has to be a singular individual learning, kind of self-learning on their own, similar, similar to, to a spiritual journey. But I, I liked what you said about the whole, um, the, 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 this, we live in a diagnosis era of psychology. I mean, you pick up your news feed in the morning, it's telling you, oh, I read, I'll read this, read this article about borderline personality disorder. And oh my golly, I have, I'm checking all the boxes. Now I have borderline personality disorder. You right. know, I need to be put on pills. And especially now with COVID, I mean, they're, they're rolling out this, this mental health, um, uh, catastrophe with COVID and people see them th- th- themselves in these diagnoses and yet there's no healthy, um, even-handed, balanced um, uh, discussion about this. And but this is all this is all what I ran into in, in the book with transhumanism, the whole dissociation and having people feel like they're dissociated. That's that's a hallmark of transhumanism. That. That began back in the you know the 1880s and moved up through after World War II with all of the Tavistock um, shell shock studies coming out of, out of out of World War One and and they 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 instead of trying to understand human behavior the Tavistock Institute actually after World War One started to try to manage human behavior so it became a really a, a coordinated effort to get humans to do what, quote, we wanted them to do. How do we, like in a propaganda sense, move human, move hearts and minds like the program in Vietnam towards some kind of behavior? And dissociation works like a charm. <laughs> you dissociate people from themselves and you, you break apart what they believe about themselves and what they trust in themselves. And, and um, 
and I have to say that some of this came out of the spirituality community. It's like just, just you know, release everything and get rid of everything and cleanse yourself and and detox from all from everything and anyone and everything. You know, sometimes that's a healthy thing and sometimes that's a not very healthy thing. But I think that dissociation has certainly p- played a role. And like you said, the social media humans are imitators. We're kind of like chimpanzees somebody or parrots we like to parrot back what we see someone else do and social media is the perfect platform for me to put on my imitation abilities and act them out and then we get caught in this double bind where we're trying to fit into this artificial literally artificial reality of transhumanism and yet we don't quite fit as humans, we don't quite fit. And quite frankly, after you know, spending three, almost four years with this, I don't think humans, most humans are going to fit into the hole that they're putting us literally with transhumanism because we, those other parts of ourselves, when there's, it's kind of like nature abhors a vacuum. <laughs> when we have a vacuum about our critical thinking or about our reasoning or about our psychic abilities, when that, critic, when that vacuum appears, we want to fill it with something. And I think humans, even if they're deprived of these important parts of education, they still have their humanity and they still have their personhood intact. And I think they're going to push back and not fit in. And I think we're seeing it with the whole reaction to COVID. Some people want to go along with it, but more and more people want to push back on it. Well, we have to take our first um, break now, but we'll be right back to continue this fascinating discussion. Welcome back to the show. I must say, I am um, concerned when I go to the grocery store once a week and see all these people now who are following the arrows up and down the aisles, wearing their masks, not looking anyone in the eye, um, and really kind of acquiescing on all levels. Certainly safety and social distancing for safety are, are one thing. But in such a short amount of time, you know, within six months, um, our society has changed dramatically in terms of how we interact with each other. Um, And the level of fear that's being created and also particularly influencing our young people and children is extraordinary. in its power and impact, I think. Uh, I feel so sorry for these, particularly the small children, who are not able to play with their friends, you know, be in school, interacting, learning how to navigate and negotiate with each other. Um, The long-term effects of all of this are going to be staggering. I, I, I totally agree. Being a mother and a grandmother, um, I know I've shared stories about my kids but um, and my grandchildren. To just, just to think about being in the house all day long with your siblings <laughs> as opposed to out, 
outside playing with your friends and being creative and 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 um, kind of being with your peer group. All of a sudden, there's children put in a house and with with their with their siblings, and that's their only playmate. And yeah, and what if you're an only child? Difficult. Yeah, what if you're an only child? Yeah, <laughs> then then your tablet or your you know your video game is your is your playmate, and that's all been orchestrated. And and I. I, I like what you said about how quickly it happens, and that's one of the reasons, if not one of the primary reasons that I wrote the book is because I, I wanted people to see the detailed depths of this labyrinth and, of transhumanism, and it is so detailed. And I wanted them to be able to understand all of the different um, aspects in which in, in which it has as um, the world uh, world economic forum Schwab at the world economic forum calls it all encompassing and and so I made the book all encompassing where I went into psychological and um, and uh, technological certainly all discussions of AI but also then I went into synthetic biology and I went into spirituality and I went into morality. And, it, and I went into um, just culturally how this is rolling out. And I wanted people to understand and be able to discern that these are the pieces of the labyrinth. These are the entry points of the labyrinth. COVID is an entry point into the la- labyrinth of transhumanism. And I wanted people to understand that when you enter a labyrinth like this, that's when you begin to get caught up in all these other aspects. You may think, oh, I'm only taking a COVID vaccine. But what you're really doing is putting yourself into artificial intelligence. Your, your, your belief system is beginning to change because of that culturally, psychologically, you're going along with something. Biologically, you're going along with something. It, it really is a labyrinth, and we have to choose not to enter the labyrinth. You know, don't go into the, the fire of the dragon because it, it is all-consuming, and it will annihilate you, and you will become something, you will become transhuman, and that's the goal. Do you feel uh, population reduction is part of all of this as well? I think that Malthusian population reduction, I think that's always been. I think that probably I follow the Space Force pretty closely, what's happening with the Space Force, what's happening with these Artemis Accords that, that the United States and, and some um, countries in Europe and Australia are beginning to put together. I think we definitely are moving into a space culture and a space economy. And um, that in and of itself goes to the point that then if we're going to have a space, a space economy and a space uh, culture where we'll kind of be like CE5, we'll always be looking out into space. Space will be controlling everything. Uh, that um, yes, they will. They will need less people to have to worry about and control. Absolutely. And how do you um, how do you suggest that we 
deal with this aside from saying no to a vaccine? I, that's, that's the whole idea of exoconscious humans that I didn't feel three years ago when I started getting into this, I began to see that no one was really talking about what are the alternatives. <laughs> you know, the alternatives, A, we're going to go back to life the way it used to be, or we're going to become transhuman. Those were, those were the two alternatives. And I began to see that there needed to be other discussions of other alternatives. And so I felt I could do my part with a discussion of what it would mean to be an exoconscious human. I just happen to be an extraterrestrial experiencer since childhood. I'm an ongoing experiencer. And so I just chose my alternative to offer forth that for those of us who are interested in extraterrestrial contact or interested in consciousness, that we could come together as, as a community of thinkers and doers and begin to um, carve out the next, our, our, our pathway. We are going into space. You can't be an exoconscious human and not think about space or not think about uh, life on other planets. That's certainly part and parcel of who we are as exoconscious humans here on Earth. But does the transhuman pathway, is this something that we want to take or do we want to create our own pathway? And that's, that's where I, I came forth with the idea of not only to write the book, but also to create um, IXO, the Institute for Exoconsciousness. So tell us about the Institute. But before we, you, you do, I, we're going to take our second and final break of, of the, the day. So we'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. So tell us about the Institute, Rebecca. So the Institute is a nonprofit. It's an international nonprofit. It's primarily online. We're very small. We're a small uh, community with a big dream, (laughs) a big vision. So our vision is to bring together experiencers who have uh, conscious, ongoing um, extraterrestrial and multidimensional contact, however they want to describe that. They're, they're in touch with um, parts of themselves, parts of them, their consciousness that are in the field of consciousness. And um, that we take that access that we have, the communication, the contact that we have in, out in the field of consciousness with you know, whatever we're contacting with, and that we bring that in then, and we begin to literally co-create um, and bring forth new innovations and ideas and pathways forward through this. It's, it's, it's not that I want to um, get rid of transhumanism. That would be a flawless argument. It's, it's so integrated into culture at this point. But what I do think we can accomplish is that we can come together as exoconscious humans and develop a different path. We believe that natural molecular human biology and our health and our energy systems are vital for advancing consciousness. So anytime that we begin to put synthetic biology into our bodies and that begins to accumulate, whether it be a vaccine or uh, clothing, it comes in, and it, all, all, all different types. The air we breathe has certainly become ionized with nanoparticles. 
that the, the more we can keep our natural human biology, the more we can keep our meridians, our chakra systems, all these energy systems that we have innate as humans and we can care for them and keep them optimized, then that is what is going to advance our consciousness and pave our way forward. So we are really a human-centric organization. Our organization is not about trying to make extraterrestrial contact. So in that respect, we're post-disclosure. We've already, we've already made contact. We're already exoconscious. We're, we are not really about trying to push some uh, political exopolitics exo agenda forward. That's not, that's not our purpose. Our purpose is not really to come and say, well, this ET, I had contact with this ET and go into this big description and compare my description of an ET with another person's description of an ET. You know, there's other organizations that do all these things. That's, that's not our purpose. We actually have uh, two uh, goals. Our first goal is that we want to seed and develop um, what we call exoconscious entrepreneurs, so people who have brought their contact in and done something with it. So we're a community of doers bringing forth new technologies, new innovations, new ideas. And then the second is that we also are seeding the training of these next generations of exoconscious entrepreneurs through um, actually each one teach one kind of idea where if, say, for example, you're a healer and you're bringing in a new modality of healing because of the contact that you experienced and you've, you've experimented with it, you feel that it works, you feel that it's important to humans to, to have this, then in the Institute, you will begin to teach other people your modality, to teach them how you access that, to teach them how you, how, how you literally implement that modality. And then our vision is to create an exoconscious civilization based on all of this knowledge, all of these building blocks. That sounds very exciting. Um, how does... Um how does an individual person's spiritual development factor into all of this? Well, one of the ways that the, uh, that factors in is through our um, our ethical our ethical stance. So um, we we believe that um, exoconscious humans are morally sovereign, morally autonomous individuals. So, in other words. Um, and ET is not going to push us around, and um, a, a church doctor is not going to push us around, and a psychologist isn't going to push us around. But we are going to very carefully and very respectfully and very deliberately decide who and what we are as sovereign, autonomous humans and begin to make decisions in that. And spirituality plays an enormous role in that because the spiritual journey is almost always done alone. The religious journey is done in groups, and everybody stays, stays in a group in religion. Everybody moves to the next level in a group in religion. In spirituality, it's, um, whether you look at the Egyptian levels of spirituality or Buddhism or, or e even Christianity, you know, the, the spiritual and the mystic moves at their own pace and takes their own risks. That's who we are as exoconscious humans. I agree with that uh, completely. 
Um, so is there s some way that you um, have to determine the people who will be sharing their knowledge um, and the people who are coming for uh, insight and training to be evaluated? How does that work? Well, right now, um, we haven't really gotten to the evaluation stage, quote unquote. What I, I, what the, the, the stage we're at right now is, has a couple aspects to it. Number one, we're trying to create a community where the community begins to set this community of autonomous, sovereign, autonomous, moral individuals begins to lay the groundwork for who fits and who doesn't fit, who, who works with this energy and the goals that we're trying to, to create and who doesn't. And um, then as we think about forming a, you know, we we'll call it maybe from Silicon Valley language, call it an incubator where our next stage is to, is to create incubators for people like healing incubators, technology incubators, um, space science incubators, um, agricultural incubators. So what these incubators will look like will not be what they look like with um, big tech investors in the Silicon Valley, for example. Um, that their idea, I think, worked. I think their model didn't because their model just funneled everyone into an AI transhuman agenda. Our, our model would be to funnel people into uh, an exoconscious civilization if they would choose to do that. We would be upfront about that and honest about that. But it also would mean that at this point, I'm not sure what our incubators are going to look like because we're going to need to listen to what the experiencers have to say as we develop them. So once again, it's going to be a 3D ground up organic process of what these what these incubators begin to look like because it needs to belong to the people it doesn't really need to belong to the uh, IT uh, venture capitalist investor <laughs> it needs to belong to the people and so that we will have a different a different pathway for that now will we bring in people perhaps maybe that are in, in, in the space sector or in uh, the biology sectors or agricultural sectors? Absolutely. And will their expertise assist us? Yes, for sure it will. But it will also always go back to this being a very organic process and a process that has its own authenticity. Well, that makes perfect perfect sense and the people who are um, involved on the ground floor are who they are um, and they're, the caliber of people that they represent I would think would be very critical to your process. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Actually, our, our, um, our, our committee of advisors acts um, it includes uh, every one of us has everyone who sits sits on our on our committees our advisory committees 
each of us has a connection and a contact and a co-creative um, component in our life in terms of our extraterrestrial multidimensional uh, relationship that has been ongoing for us. And each of us has moved through sort of the fire and, uh, and the refinement of what that has made us as professionals and as parents and as community members. So we actually bring our collective, um, I guess you could call it multidimensional ET groups into our meetings. So we co-create our institute along with our groups. So they are members of our groups. And we, when we access, and we access their information. So we are, we are walking our walk, <laughs> talking our talk. <laughs> uh-huh. And it's, I, well. there's no, I really haven't seen, I mean, there's no, um, there's no playbook for this. It's not like the NFL playbook. We don't have a playbook yet. <laughs> but I think as we, as we continue to do this, we will develop one. And, you know, people come and go. Some, some people feel like it's not for them and they've dropped out. And other, other people have come forward. So it's, uh, it, it's, there's a movement in it. And um, there's an authenticity and an honesty to it. We're, we're well, going back, going back to your, um, your, you know, one of your opening comments about the need for discernment, the UFO and ET communities have a lot of really fine people, but they also have a lot of kooks, you know, that it, the subject matter alone attracts, you know, people from the whole spectrum um, in terms of credibility and, and, you know, just out there in space, so to speak. So it's, um, it's very interesting as we move into the real age of Aquarius, which is upon us, uh, which represents space travel and the darker side of it, transhumanism and the collective and community and, and all of that. Um, to also reaching for the stars, literally and figuratively, outside of ourselves into the universe and in our interior stars as well. Um, and I, I do think there's a self-regulating quality that will happen in all of this, um, that you know we are in the process of finding our tribes, finding people who are frequency-specific to us, and um, individually, and the more as time goes on right now, um, it definitely feels like I, I know myself getting to know new people. It's, it's like obvious almost from, you know, hello, <laughs> you know, that, that expression from Jerry yeah. Maguire, it's true, you had me on hello. I think that's becoming more and more true for all of us, you know, as we um, as we become more uh, authentic ourselves, we recognize that authenticity in others, and we recognize frequency-wise those who are vibrating along with us, you know, in tandem with us. And um, I must say, when interacting with people 
who are compatible in that way, the ease is extraordinary. Whereas if you're communicating with people who are not frequency specific, there's lots of frustration still and misunderstanding. It's harder. It's more difficult. Have you found that to be true too? Oh, absolutely. That was so well said, Mia. That's really, yes, I totally agree. That's so well said, especially with your analysis of the age of Aquarius. Because I I think one of the biggest um, challenges we're going to have in the age of Aquarius is to stay grounded (laughs) and not just be in our head (laughs) all the time. Right, which is why discernment is so important right now, to learn discernment now before, you know, the aspects really are full force. Yeah, and I do also agree that with psychic intelligence or exoconsciousness, 3D does become easier. (laughs) But some of those are lessons. I remember, um, you know, a a lesson kind, kind of that I learned in childhood, but that came up to me again in adulthood about just being honest, just tell the truth. And I remember just going through that in childhood, kind of having it sort of disciplined into me. But then in adulthood, it's like all of a sudden, I had all this choice. I could be honest or I could be dishonest or I could sort of gray out the the differences. And I had to really face myself and say, you know, stop, stop doing that. Just be honest. Just tell the truth. You know, you're not going to die over it. Nobody's going to attack you. Your world's not going to fall apart. Just be honest and move on. And those type of lessons take maturing and aging and, 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 and knowledge and wisdom. They just don't come overnight. And yet, um, you know, maybe you learn that at 20 or maybe you learn that at 40. I, I don't know. But those are important human lessons, and those are going to continue on this earth because we need those lessons here on earth. But I do definitely agree that one of the things I talk about in the book is psychic intelligence as an eighth intelligence. I, I use Gardner's theories of multiple intelligences that a lot of people are familiar with, and I posit uh, psychic intelligence as a ninth intelligence where we take our psychic abilities, our ESP, our telepathy, um, whether you journal every morning and say psychically, what am I going to need for the day? Uh, but that we take those and we take our, our, our psychic connections and the extraterrestrials and multidimensionals in the field of consciousness, and we take all that information and literally um, live our life by it. Just simply live our life by it. And that well, once you, once you align and you're honest with yourself first about, you know, what you think, what you feel, what you want, um, then it becomes far easier to be honest with other people. And you realize, you know, you're not doing anyone a service by uh, fudging with them, you know, by letting them believe one thing just because you think that's what they want to believe. Um, and it does nothing but impact your own energy and muddy, muddy it for you. Uh, it just immediately, you know, takes away from your own sparkle. Your own energetic sparkle is diminished when you well, play games like if, that. If you can't be honest with other people, you cannot be honest with yourself. 
And right, what, but it, that's it comes. That's what is your sparkle. <laughs> yeah, it, but it, it starts with you, you know. You right. have to be willing to identify mm-hmm. what's going on with you at any yeah. given moment. So it's, um, it's pretty powerful. It, it takes time and practice. Yeah, it, ta- it does. It takes commitment. You know, you have to be determined to live that way. And, um, it, and you know, when the people around you are not functioning that way, um, then it can be frustrating, to say the least. But, um, but the more you practice it, the more you attract like-minded people, which is such a gift. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> So, Rebecca, being a woman in this uh, incredible field of ETs and ufology uh, and, and as a woman in this field for a long time now, um, how, how do you feel about your place as a woman uh, in this arena and what has been your experience because it seems like um you know this is the guy's territory it seems like for me from my perspective um having only been involved not that i haven't been been a contactee for a long time for decades but for my whole life probably but um you know i've only been involved uh organizing my conference or writing about it um, for the past two and a half years. And I certainly notice that uh, the guys are in charge of, of this um, community. And I'm curious to hear what you have to say about it. I think that um, the guys are in charge of this community. I think it's been like that since its inception. And I think part of that is due to the fact of the government military intelligence aspects. Um, Most ufology and most ufologists are men, and most of them have, have decided that the best way to find out about extraterrestrials is to study uh, secret government documents or secret intelligence and military documents and try to get people to be whistleblowers and tell them the truth. Um, that's been their um, primary mode of, of seeking information or seeking wisdom or seeking a path forward. That has never been my path. Uh, my path has always been um, an inter- first, as we were talking about, first an internal path, first, first know yourself, know your, know, know your mind, know your emotions, know, know your health, know your sanity, know your relationships with people, be honest, be moral and um, learn to um, use and appreciate your consciousness. I always felt that consciousness was by far the biggest fundamental principle in all of ufology. And it's interesting that only now, you know, some, I've been in this over 20 years. Now, 20 years later, you know, some ufologists are coming out and saying, oh, you know, consciousness is the path. And... Um, so because I didn't ever s- sort of buy into the way that they chose to navigate the, let's call it extraterrestrial presence, I never, I never had as very high expectations around belonging 
because I didn't want to play on the same playing field as they were. So my path took longer to unfold, but I knew that in the end, for me, it, it, was, it was the better approach. It was the approach that worked. Um, I've never really, and actually, in the beginning, I, I felt more discrimination because I was in consciousness than because I was a woman. And I would have people coming up to me, you know, as, as far back, as, as recent actually as, say, five years ago, and saying, you know, will you just shut up about consciousness? Will you shut up about exoconsciousness? Nobody's going to have uh, a congressional committee or nobody's going to be on, you know, um, Larry King or now it's, I guess, um, Carlson, Tucker Carlson, nobody's going to be on the news talking about this. If you're going to just throw a wrench on what we're trying to accomplish, we need to cooperate with the CIA and we need to cooperate with the military and to the STARS initiative. And that's the only way we're going to get disclosure. And they would literally put me in the back of the room. And I just, I just held my ground and said, no, you know, the path is consciousness. The path is grassroots. The path is the singular human individual valuing themselves and moving forward. It's not about a program or, and that's, that's what's become transhumanism, quite, quite frankly. You know, if we get, uh, I'll guarantee <laughs> if we get CIA disclosure, we're going to get transhuman disclosure. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. <laughs> and for some right. people, that's what they want. <laughs> Well, I, I, it, it very much feels like there's a, you know, good old boys club in, in yeah. so many respects. Um, yeah. And there are, you know, many wonderful women, women doing very fine research um, and not getting appropriate credit or, you know, funneling their research to a man who's, who may share a byline, but it's still predominantly considered their research when that that's not the case. And, you know, that that's not anything new. Um, You know, women have have contributed in this way for hundreds and thousands of years. It's um, well, I I think we also have to hold the community responsible. I think we have to hold the ufology community responsible for who they are choo- choosing to, um, to, to listen to and to be their experts. So if all you can see is a man in front of you, you know, then that's, that's a community responsibility. You know, why, why can't you broaden your vision to that? Right. But I also feel that, that a lot of it does track back to government military intelligence that people were i think given information by these you know kind of in quote insider information and i think most of them were men that were given the information certainly linda you know linda Moulton house she was given information and is held in very very high esteem but you know it's few and far between but that kind of also you know, while we talk about transhumanism, that also goes into alchemy because in alchemy, you know, you climb that ladder and transhumanism is old-fashioned alchemy. It's old, it's old out, the old alchemy route. You know, you, you climb that ladder from, you know, man is plant to man is animal to man is mineral. That's transhumanism. Man is, man is mineral, man is machine. 
And the pinnacle of alchemy is you're an androgynous male. <laughs> so, which most people yeah, don't realize. Yeah, I, but what most uh, people don't realize, <laughs> what most people don't realize is, you know, the alchemy, the spiritual alchemy, the spiritual transformation can do anything that transhumanism can do um, if you're willing oh, sure. to stay the course. So, um, you know, Madame Blavatsky more than 100 years ago, a woman who was mm-hmm. a huge threat, huge threat to the male establishment, um, was writing the secret doctrine and, and you know, more than 150 years ago. And coming up with the inventions which have all come to pass mm-hmm. and um, making things materialize and dematerialize and all of that. So, um, you know, there were women who were d- definite leaders. And in terms of her influence on countless people, um, you know, writers and artists and Rudolf Steiner, and, and the list mm-hmm. just goes on and on and on and on. Uh, Einstein kept a copy of the secret doctrine on his desk always. Mm-hmm. Um, a woman, you know, a, a woman who bucked tradition and, uh, you know, ran away from her husband to go off to Tibet and study with the lamas and, uh, you know, at 19. So um, women have so much to contribute and, um from my perspective now, having spent so much time with the Lakota, which is really a matriarchal um, society, uh, even though you know it's gotten away from that now because of Western influence, but um, you know women, particularly elder elder women, are venerated because they have reached this level of maturity and flowering, spiritual flowering. Um, but the, the whole spiritual dimension of Native American culture and, what, and the knowledge and wisdom and abilities that come with all of that in heal, healing and every other area of life, it's just phenomenal and has you know, nothing to do with transhumanism. It's the exact antithesis, in fact. Right. These are these are uh, interesting times, and I think that as as the exoconscious community goes forward, I think that we'll be looking at more and more women stepping into leadership. And I, I like how you brought up the whole mystery school aspect because I do believe that a lot of extraterrestrial phenomenon technology has been stored in mystery school communities for many, many, many decades, if not uh, centuries. And these mystery schools in their, in their early, earliest iteration were um, certainly, you know, the higher levels of, of leadership within, within their community. And they, you know, some were gatekeepers for this knowledge and said that this, you know, this, uh, this, this extraterrestrial phenomenon knowledge is not on any, you know, humans aren't ready for it, so we're not going to release it. And then I think that there were, you know, scientists and, and inventors that actually housed their information with 
with mystery schools for safekeeping because maybe they suffer persecution or whatever. So I think the mystery school role today is changing dramatically. I think we've yet to hear the true story of the role of the mystery schools, um, certainly how decisions were made, why they were made, who was in charge. But um, I think that's going to be fascinating history for anyone that wants to um, try to gain entry, an entry point into a mystery school, a really a high-level mystery school, not a low-level, a high-level mystery school, and find out um, actually what happened, what's the history of that. Because we only see a very kind of subtle picture of how powerful the mystery schools have been and who has been in charge. We really only see the front people, Blavatsky being a front person. We don't really know who was behind Blavatsky. We only know the stories of what was told about her. So it's almost like, you know, who are the figureheads of the mystery, of the mystery schools and who, who is really making the decisions? I have no idea. All I know is I'm fascinated by it. <laughs> Well, in her case, um, given the fact that it was 150 years ago, which is not a, a long time ago, really, um, and, and the countless people who were around her who wrote extensively about her, um, you know, reading their work, you can get a, a pretty clear picture of who she was as an, as an individual. And... Um, the, the threat that she presented um, primarily because she was a woman mm-hmm. and her abilities were so um, pronounced. Oh, so um, she, advanced. So advanced. You know, she sort of, mm-hmm. you know, sprung, fell form uh, from the head of Zeus, yes. so to speak, yes. where all these other, you know, guys mm-hmm. uh, we're, we're learning, and I think that has something, a lot to do, in fact, with how she threw herself into this 100%. You know, mm-hmm. she left everything behind because this was her path in life. And I think, you know, uh, women do things like that. You know, women will abandon um, mm-hmm. family, friends, mm-hmm. and just go off and, and do that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, more than men in many ways, you know, if they're really called. Um, so it's, it's, it's just a very interesting time I, all the way around. I don't know if they, if they will do it more than men, but I certainly think culturally for a woman, it's certainly a bigger sacrifice than for a man. I think there. I think the level of commitment. I, you know, a woman yes. gives birth. A woman care is the caretaker, right. not only for her family. children but for mm-hmm. her family and community. Mm-hmm. Um, so when a woman commits on that level, I, I just think their ability um, mm-hmm. to commit on a profound manner is yeah. is greater. It's a much more far greater. It's a stronger. It's a stronger commitment. It takes more courage. It takes more courage, but I think it has more power. Frankly, yes. I think. Uh I think that. I think that they women are in touch with 
the creative life force in such a profound and immediate way that mm-hmm. when they commit to a process like, you know, theosophy in her case, mm-hmm. yeah. um, she gave birth to it, brought it to fruition um, in, in, in an enormous way that no one could have predicted at that moment in time. Mm-hmm. I mean, Krishnamurti came out of Madame right. Blavatsky, too, and his influence right. is nothing compared to hers. Yeah, Annie Besant, yeah. nothing yeah. compared to hers. Yeah, tr- truly, yeah. But I, just, I still maintain that many of the doors of mystery schools whether you go back to Babylonian mystery schools or, you know, Egyptian or whatever. But I mean, this is uh, a lot of this knowledge has been under wraps and it'll just be very interesting to see that in this age of, of um, dismantling of institutions, whether, and theosophy and mystery schools are an institution. It'll just be interesting to see if those are also dismantled and how, if they are, and how, how it happens, and what information comes out of it. I think will be, a, I, I, probably for me, it would be some of the most interesting information that I ever hear. <laughs> I, I agree with you, but I also think what's happening right now, Rebecca, is the light is, is coming in. You know, the mm-hmm. world is cracking. Yeah. The light yeah. is coming in. We've been under a deluge of mm-hmm. murder and blood for, you know, thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And that has to change because that's... Sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, total sacrifice. Death sacrifice. Sacrifice, death, debt. Need we also say debt? That's just really quickly, that's one of the things that we're going to be looking at with the Institute is we humans don't have very much experience in debt-free economies, how to create them or how to live in them, quite frankly. So that's one of the reasons that we're... That, that, that the, the, the Institute is looking at what this exoconscious civilization is going to, is going to be. How is that going to work in a debt-free economy, you know, as opposed to transhuman digital economy, which is like you get your chit at the, at the company store and your life is all metered and regulated. You know, how, how can we humans experience a debt-free life? What's, What's that even mean? And what's that going to do to, to, to sacrifice and our whole 3D dimension? There's just very few examples, very few examples of it, unless you look at well, bartering. Yeah, well, bartering is, of course, mm-hmm. a, a part yeah. of it. It has to be. But um, it isn't even about that. I mean, going back to Madame Blavatsky yet again, uh, and my own personal experience in terms of manifesting we, mm-hmm. When we are in alignment, we can manifest whatever we need mm-hmm. um, virtually out of thin air. So mm-hmm. it's, well, it's I think that's all be an absolutely be a part component. of the process. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. And manifesting I agree. is debt-free. Manifesting is just, you know, and that could be economically looked at, well, the, the, the goods of the world belong to me as a human, and I can manifest what I need. Right. And the, the goods again, of the world do really... belong, do yeah, belong absolutely. to all all of the humans. Yeah, mm-hmm. not just some. But in terms of economic history, we we don't really have a model. We we, we haven't had any long term models because we've lived under. You know, I, I guess you know in the Old Testament they had the jubilee when they forgave all the debt, 
but there have been, been very, very scarce and few debt-free models that have lasted Well, yeah, because control has been such yeah, a... Yeah, because of control. You yeah. know, factor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, so, I mean, you know, I think that's going to come organically. I, I think that, that's, that, the, uh, that the economic pieces are going to come organically along with everything else. It's a holistic, you know, for the, for the Institute, for IXO, it's a, it's a holistic undertaking. The food we eat, the economies we live under, spirituality, our education system, it's, it's, a whole, it's holistic. Well, I think we're, we're already seeing that with um, the virus and people's response mm-hmm. to the virus and the help and support that is coming and the fact that uh, some countries are already rolling out universal basic income. Um, so I, I think, you know, this is part of the letting the light mm-hmm. out. Um, you know, we have been really, in my opinion, very gently shown that what we were doing was is not working and we need to be doing something else. Yeah, that goes back to that's that's an innate that's innate prop that's an innate property. Humans do see darkness. Humans do see dystopia. Humans do have fears and emotions, but humans also are full of light and creativity. You know, you more than anyone know that, Mia, because that's kind of been your your life goal is to bring this cre- this creativity and beauty in, into the world. And and those those parts of ourselves are going to push forward in this time. Yeah, I think they're just going to blossom and spread. That's that's been what I've been seeing recently and um, and more and more so every day. So mm-hmm. I think it's all part of this acceleration that we're experiencing right now uh, as long mm-hmm. as we can stay optimistic in a positive way, not but not in the airy-fairy way. <laughs> I think, positive I, I in think the grounded, yeah. practical way. Yeah. I, I, I think humans also have an innate need to serve one another and this, this innate altruism that, that we all possess. And so I, I like to call exoconscious humans that we're going to be the antidote. We're going to be kind of also be the antidote when things go wrong. We're going to be bringing forward the, the science and the healing, you know, when the vaccines don't work or you want to get the, the synthetic biology toxins out of your body. You know, the, the, I think this exoconscious community are going to be in the forefront and certainly heavily, heavily, heavily participating in the healing and the detoxification of things that we humans do to ourselves and um, bringing those solutions. Right. Exciting. I think so, too. Well, Rebecca, is there anything from your book that you'd like to share before we um, and this fascinating conversation. Well, one thing I the, the one thing I do want to share is, as I said, I'm I'm not really here to say to to demonize transhumanism or to you know on the other hand look at exoconscious humans as though we're perfect because uh, every chapter in the or most chapters in the book I cover um, who an exoconscious human is and then who a transhuman is. And then the third section is what's the common ground? What's the common ground that we can share to move forward? And I think those are very important sections of the books because um, exoconscious humans do use technology and they do use science 
And these things are important to us and in the, in, in the work that we do and in the creation we do. So it's not really an exclusionary kind of Hegelian dialectic, but I, I wrote the book as um, a kind of a sane path forward where we recognize all, all parts of ourselves because we are scientific and we are technological. And we do relate to machines, and we do relate to, to, to minerals. We are mineral man. And that is definitely part of who we are as humans. But that doesn't mean that we just let go of all the other important parts that make us exoconscious, where we, we are opening our consciousness into the, the field of consciousness. I think that's very true and very well said. And I would like to add that we're all ETs. We all yes. have ET DNA. We're, we're all from multiple star systems. You know, we are not, as the Lakota say, Asin, we are all related. We are mm-hmm. all related. That's yeah. absolutely, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. the basis of everything. And yeah. To we, all my stuff. all my relations, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's a whole other um, program. <laughs> it it is, but it's it the is. most it is the most yeah. basic fact, it's and most, that's yeah. what we're yeah. reclaiming. That's what we are claiming, perhaps for the first time. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think this that's, is who that we are. All the synthetic biology DNA experimentation, and you know, do we just set that aside, or do we learn that and take that and apply that knowledge to? to who we humans are in terms of our, our exoconscious DNA and bringing that, that information forward. So it's not mutually exclusive by any means. Right. I agree. Well, Rebecca, how can people get a hold of you? Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's fun. How can people find out more about the Institute and your work and get your book, all of those things? All of those are at exoconsciousness.com or i-exo.com or just look for Rebecca Hardcastle, Rebecca Hardcastle Wright, all there on the internet. Thank you so much. Fun, wonderful as you talking to you, enlightening. (laughs) We will have all your contact information um, with the interview um, on the podcast. Uh, So thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Mia. Happy Halloween. (laughs) Thank you. You also. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye for now.